read God's word to us tonight. If you would like to grab a Bible um, from the seat in front of you, um, we are reading from Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start at sentence number 62 and go through to 28 verse 20. So page 811 if you're in a church Bible. The guard at the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Thanks, Sarah. Well, please keep those Bibles open in front of you there. You'll also find in your bulletin there was an outline that's been printed for you that you'll be able to follow along that I'll be working through. That'll tell you uh, what's coming next. There's some things you can write down there, place to write questions perhaps. You'll, you'll know precisely how long I'm going to go for and where we're up to. Uh, that can always be helpful. So uh, make use of that. 
And if you are here and under 18 and you've not had enough of chocolate, I have more for you. If you can show me, you filled out one of those by the time we're done. Well, let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your love for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this time and this opportunity to come before your Word. Would you speak to us? Would you teach us and show us? Would you help us that we would see Jesus and that we would have great comfort in him and understand all you have laid out for us? And we pray it in his precious name. Amen. Well, back when I used to live in Guymere with my wife Karen and our children, we also had living with us at that time a family of guinea pigs. Guinea pigs are fascinating creatures. They masticate, defecate and copulate consistently, constantly, all times of the day and night at alarming rates. However, on Good Friday, one year, the mother of them all finally breathed her last. Her name was Poppy. And what can we say about Poppy? Small, black, beady eyes, brown and white fur coat. And the mother of many, many, many generations of happy-go-lucky guinea pigs currently still roaming around the Sutherland Shire. That was a very sad time as I removed her cold body from the cage and we gathered the boys around and gave them the sad news and gently laid her together to rest under a tree in the backyard. And while most of us shed a too as we remembered those special moments we'd shared with Poppy, our three-year-old at the time was a little bit confused by all the grief. You see, he knew his Bible, he knew the power of God, and so amidst his tears, uh, our tears, I should say, he piped up cheerfully saying, don't worry, mummy, Poppy will be alive again in her cage on Sunday. <laughs> Happy Easter. <laughs> well, as, as delightful as that story is, uh, it demonstrates two very important things to us. Uh, first that much of the time we humans have no idea what on earth we're talking about. And secondly, secondly, it demonstrates the kind of confidence that we can have in our God. Confidence in Him that He can and will bodily raise the dead. And we can have this confidence in our God because of Easter, because of Jesus' resurrection, because of what we read here, hear here in Matthew's Gospel, because Knowing the resurrected Jesus changes everything. Most especially that because of his resurrection, we do not need to be afraid. But are we overconfident? <laughs> like my three-year-old, perhaps. Did it really happen? It's certainly not a common thing. It's not like people often rise from the dead and you know, Jesus is just one among many. And in fact, that Jesus did actually rise from the dead was a startling piece of information, even for Jesus' disciples, who were quite ready to just disappear back into their normal lives now that the show was over with after his death on the cross. So that it actually happened, not only surprising to them, but that it actually happened as verifiable history, well, it's so important that we know that without the resurrection, Christian faith is utterly false. 
Without the resurrection, Christian faith is ridiculously foolish. The, the fact that all things that Christians believe rely on, our entire belief hangs on, is that having died upon the cross on Friday, Jesus rose, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on Sunday. Without his resurrection, we frankly have nothing. And that was a fact not lost on the enemies of Jesus, as we heard just now from Matthew's Gospel. It all hangs on this. Did the resurrection happen or did it not? Did it happen or did it not? If it did happen, well then this is a challenge to all worldly authorities and powers who use death and who use the threat of death as a source of power. If it happened, then the grace and love of Jesus is real and fear, fear is ended. Well, they're good things, aren't they? So, so let's be sure of this. Let's make sure of this. Let's together examine an, uh, one of the eyewitness accounts we have from someone who was there, because that's what we have here in Matthew's Gospel. And it will be important for you to have that text open as I take us through it, because, well, you need to make sure that I'm not making this up. When there's a lot of stories, a lot of fables, a lot of myths, well, what we have here is a historical record. So check and make sure that what I'm saying matches it. And as we do, well, let's examine first, let's start with the anxious opposition, those who were opposing Jesus. Because did you notice what happened as soon as he was buried? It was reported there, uh, that sentence that starts with the number 62 there, verse 62 of chapter 27. So we see that in an official visit to the Roman governor, Pilate, the chief priests and the Jews and the Pharisees, well, they went to him and they made a request, an official request, the governor. They wanted a guard to be placed on the tomb, a guard to make sure that no one, no one could steal Jesus' body and claim resurrection falsely. They had remembered Jesus' promise that he would rise after three days. And so they wanted to make sure that no one would be able to fake it, especially Jesus' followers. Pilate agreed to their request and he instructed them to, what was it, make it as secure as you know how. So just like when Daniel was put into the lion's den to make it secure, by order of the king a guard was posted and Jesus' tomb has placed upon it a seal of the governor to stop any human from gaining access from the outside. It would now be a broken law. It would now be a serious offence to crack that seal. But what they didn't count on, of course, is an act of God. They did not count on an act of God. For as Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrived at the tomb on Sunday morning, they witnessed the earthquake and the angel who opened the tomb and sat upon and struck so much fear into the guards that they shook and became like dead men. And then the angel spoke to the women. But, but in fact, let's, let's come back to the women in just a moment. Let's stick with the guards a little bit longer because we get more about them here, don't we? See, once they, they come to after this great big event, they're picked up further down here in verse 11. And so we read, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Notice that. They report everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and they devised a plan 
They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Oh, that's sneaky, isn't it? It's one of those sneaky moments. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book, isn't it? When we lose control of a situation, when we've been soundly beaten by an honest opponent, what do we do? Do we give up and humbly admit that we were wrong? Do we accept defeat? Of course not. No, we throw lies around, we cast out a few bribes, we do our utmost to ensure that we are not on the wrong side of history. They'd be weak. And these guys were so chock full of their own self-importance, they would never say they were wrong. So they did what we're all tempted to do when we lose control of a situation. They resort to bribes and lies and they combine them with a public campaign of gossip that made them look good and Jesus' followers look deceptive and nasty. And what of those followers? What were they doing? What were they, while this was going on, were they really a courageous bunch of radicals who were prepared to outmaneuver a detachment of Roman soldiers and break the law against the government's seal, steal the body of Jesus and then fake a lie? Well, that's a bold tale, but it's certainly not the one the disciples told or what was told about them. They're not so much a pack of daring renegades, rather the disciples, meanwhile, they're just plain fearful. They're just plain fearful. And so fearful and so full of doubt that Jesus' resurrection would happen that they weren't exactly camped out there ready for that third day to see what happens. In fact, the only people who came bravely to the graveside were the two Marys. Only them. Unlike his disciples, well, they've been nowhere to be seen since, well, roughly three days ago with Peter's denial. The women, meanwhile, if we look back, they had been present there at the crucifixion. They had been present there when Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down and watched putting into the tomb. They, they, they had been present the whole time watching these things. Yes, indeed, they too were fearful, but they had perhaps less to worry about than the men whom the authorities had been watching. But even still, yet even these courageous women were utterly undone by the angel. You see what he says to them there, verse 5? Do not be afraid. We don't usually need to say that to someone who's not afraid, do we? (laughs) Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified he is not here. He has risen just as, he's, uh, just as he said he would. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And afraid as they were of the angel and yet now full of joy at the message, they hurry out to find the disciples when suddenly... Verse 9, Jesus himself met them 
Greetings, he said. It's very casual, isn't it? <laughs> Greetings. What must have gone through their minds at that moment? Oh, we can only wonder. I look forward to asking them. What did they think? Thunderstruck with amazement and awe. I reckon they would never have forgotten this moment for the rest of their lives. Here was the resurrection Jesus standing right here before them. Well, they knew exactly what to do, didn't they? And so they, they clasped his feet and they worshipped him. What a moment. What a revelation. What a miracle they have just witnessed. Their greatest hopes now fulfilled in full through Jesus' promise that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Well, now he has against all expectation, even theirs. And what did he have to say to them? Well, after greetings, he had two things to say. The two things they most needed to hear. One, do not be afraid. There it is again. Do not be afraid. And two, a new beginning is at hand. A new beginning is about to begin. Now, I, uh, in my role as a minister, I have the humble privilege regularly of being present in people's lives in some of their deepest, darkest moments when everything is taken from them. Times when loss is profound, times when the pain is just all too real, times when the future just seems to be gone, uh, whether the loss is related to health that's been deteriorating or now hit rock bottom, whether the loss is a job loss, whether it's a marriage broken or their loved one taken from them. In each situation, in all of these awful moments, the, the two key problems are the same for us all. Same two key problems. One, we become captive to fear. We become captive to fear, get stuck in the moment, captive to fear. And, and two, well, we're just immobilised. Immobilised by this ending that has struck us so deeply, so personally. And at times like those, we need comfort, don't we? Oh, we need comfort. And we need news of a new beginning, that comfort for the pain and the bewilderment and news of a new beginning so that life can start again, that there is hope after this situation, even through and with this situation that we find ourselves in. Well, God knows what we need at times like these. And it's comfort and a new beginning, therefore, that are the two messages Jesus speaks here, oh so briefly, to the, to the two Mary's fear. Comfort for the moment and the promise of a new beginning and how to reach that new beginning. That, that's all Jesus said. That's all he said. And so briefly, it's all he said and, and it was enough. For these are those two key issues we're faced when we're mastered by fear. We all need comfort, especially in the face of death, betrayal and disappointment. And God is not ignorant of our needs. He's not ignorant. No, he sent his son to meet them. And that's precisely what happens here. Jesus comes to meet them. And supplies precisely what they need. And beyond them and beyond this moment, beyond the cross, Jesus' concern for his followers continues 
right through and extends right through to the very end of the age. Jesus, he has compassionate concern for how we feel. And he has a commanding interest in our new beginnings. See, for him, no, no pain is too deep, no situation is too bleak, that it is beyond the reach of the comfort of Christ and the new beginning that he brings. And with those precious words spoken by Jesus on that first Easter morning, resurrection, comfort and hope changed everything. And there is now a new beginning. And so they go. Now, what's not obvious here in the text that we have here is Matthew's written it. Uh, there, there's a difference between verse, a uh, difference in time, a time difference of 40 days, roughly, between verse 10 and verse 16. So the women being told to go and tell the disciples, the disciples gathering in Galilee, somewhere around 40 days. And during that time, in the other accounts we have of uh, Jesus' death and rising, we find that he had a whole lot of conversations, a whole lot of interactions that the disciples had with Jesus across that time period. There in Jerusalem, on one occasion, 500 people at the same time. And all those are recorded for us in Luke and in Acts and in John's Gospel. Meanwhile, Matthew's historical interest here is on that particular meeting that occurs here in Galilee. Somewhere before the end of those 40 days just before Jesus ascends into heaven. And did you notice that the disciples arrive there and they're not really all that triumphant? Yes, they worshipped Jesus, but they were still fearful followers. Fearful followers. Some couldn't lose their doubts. I mean, they've been with him for some time now, resurrected. They still cannot lose their doubts. And no wonder, because they're still in danger from the authorities. Remember what they've been accused of? Grave robbers? Perpetuating a lie? There's a lot going on for these guys. Happy enough he's alive, but what does it mean for them in the years to come? Especially if Jesus is now about to do what he told them he's going to do, which is to leave earth and rule earth from heaven until his return. So how are they going to get on? What are they going to do? They needed a sure place to stand. They needed, again, to know a life worth living. They needed comfort in this spot and they needed a place that's going to be, well, that's going to show them what to do. So he addresses it here in these final words in Matthew that Matthew records there in verse 18. He supplies for them a sure place to stand. A sure place to stand it is supplied here by Jesus. That sure place? Well, those words... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. <laughs> Without doubt, the most audacious words ever spoken, aren't they? All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to one person, to him. Most amazing claim a human can utter. And yet if he's... Just if this is true, like his resurrection promise was true, 
well then this is a statement that will empower the disciples and every follower of Jesus thereon to act in unimaginable ways for every century that follows this moment. These are the words that give us a sure place to stand, a safe place to stand, and will help us not to be afraid no matter, no matter what's going on around us. Why is that so? How? Well, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And the implications of that are huge. So this, this means that nothing can touch or harm his disciples, his followers, unless Jesus gives permission for that to occur. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's got the lot. It's all in his hands. So not a hair on their head can fall, not a sword can pierce their breast, unless Jesus permits it. And the implications of his authority for the followers of Jesus well, it's, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Are you a follower of Jesus? Do, do you want to be a follower of Jesus? And it's a good time to think about it, isn't it? I mean, if all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, we're going to have to deal with him at some point. And if you do... Well, then we need to know how to follow him. We need to know what that means and what matters for that. Because if, if for all who follow him, this means that each of us will live until the time Jesus decides to take us home to him. He's the one who decides the timing, the place, the hour, the manner, the method of death for every single one of us. It's in his hands. And this means likewise that every illness, every catastrophe, every misadventure that skips past the Christian and misses them, well, that's because of Jesus. And so too, every difficulty, every misadventure, every illness, every pain that we endure before and including and during our death, likewise, is in his hands. It's sanctioned and governed by him who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's kind of scary that someone has say over that. But it's only scary until we realise who it is. For this is, this is him who, who loves us. This is him who went to the cross for us, who purchased us with his blood with his own blood, and who then and now governs everything for our good and for his glory. And they're not two separate things anymore. No, they're now totally intertwined. His glory and our good. And that has massive implications for us, doesn't it? Yes, it's fearful for anyone who opposes Jesus. But for anyone who chooses to join Jesus, for those of us who love him, well, these are, be, these are now words of life. That's what this is. These are now words of life for those who love him. That's what this is. Words of life that mean we can find peace and hope and joy in every situation that befalls us until he takes us home. Until he takes us home to him. Because all authorities in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. 
well, then we have no reason to be afraid if we're on his team. That's great comfort, isn't it? What an amazing comfort this place to stand is. What security, what safety. And that's good, and that settles our hearts and minds. It gets our heart rate down and helps us to now think, okay, all right, this is where I am, and that's what's going on, so what about this new beginning? What, what do I do now? Well, indeed, now there is a purposeful life to be lived while we wait for Jesus to return or for him to take us home. And that's his magnificent command here, recorded in verses 19 and 20. So he says, All authority heaven and earth has been given to me, Therefore, that's the case, so therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Oh, now there's a job description. In fact, more than just a job description, that's a life to be lived. Disciple making disciples, that's what his followers are now supposed to do. That's what our lives are now to be all about. This means that becoming a follower of Jesus is not some dead-end qualification. You know, you, you finish your study or whatever it is and you get your certificate stamped, thank you very much, and off I go. No, no, it, it has implications that roll forward. And likewise, this is no bolt-on, you know, nine-to-five job or hobby or something on the side that, you know, we're trying to get a bit of life balance. So I've got my job and I've got my religion and I've got my family stuff and I've got my holidays and I've got to bounce all of that. No, not at all. This is no extra. This is now all encompassing and all those other things now serve that purpose and play a part in that purpose. It's what everything else now becomes about. Pleasures enjoyed and problems endured and even just the sheer ordinariness of life that keeps us breathing, all of our existence is transformed into purpose without loss. That's an astonishing thought, isn't it? A life of purpose without loss where every part counts and nothing is in vain. And so no matter what skills and talents we possess or no matter what skills and talents we fail to progress, there's one work commanded by Jesus that will never be in vain. And gee, that's good news to us when we think of the number of times we spend, you know, mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, cleaning the house. It's in vain, isn't it? Because the grass grows again and the washing piles up again and the mess is made again. I don't know why I bothered. But when that's all part of what God has called us to, making disciples of all nations, not in vain. Serving that purpose, wonderfully baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Well, this is the new beginning that Jesus sparks into life for the disciples and for all who follow him. And indeed, this is what transformed this command uh, this clarity about who they are and where they stand with Jesus and this command that follows transforms these 11, uh, these 11 doubtful disciples, transforms their lives until he calls them home. Matthew will die, of course, but he, before he does, he writes this gospel to make sure that we have this information, that it can be passed on so that everyone knows what the commands of Jesus are, who will follow. And indeed, the next generation continued the task until they too 
were called home by Jesus. And the next generation took it up. And the next generation lived purposefully for Jesus. And on and on and on and on we go until 14,000 kilometres and 21 centuries distant from that mountain in Galilee, here we sit. Here we are, still a part of that chain, still living out this command. And that comfort of knowing that Jesus has all authority and this new beginning he supplies is still the same one that we're living now as we seek to overflow the grace and love of Jesus to one another and to all around us here in the northern Illawarra. Amidst all the things we need to do day by day, all the things that just keep our hearts beating and our houses clean, all the stuff we need to do, well, they all serve this purpose and this is now a life filled with purpose that always brings glory to God. Always. And just in case we become fearful along the way, just in case we become fearful of what other people think, just in case we, we wonder if you know, maybe God doesn't see or doesn't know or doesn't care about us and our circumstances, well, Jesus supplies this final assurance for us here recorded in verse 20. The last words Matthew records. And Jesus says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As a follower of Jesus, Christ is with us. We are never alone. He is with us. Which means he's with us today. And today, today, it's Easter Day, the 9th of April, 2023. The first day of the rest of your life. Congratulations. Until Jesus takes us home or Christ returns in the first place. And while we wait for those two moments to come, we do not need to be mastered by our fears. We don't need to think that there is no tomorrow. And we don't need to fear that life is pointless. Oh, no. Do not be afraid, for Christ is risen. And this changes everything. And because he has risen, this means we can be those who live joyfully under the authority of Jesus. We can be those who live cheerfully, even in the midst of difficulty, as we seek to follow his disciple-making command. This means we can be those who gently endure the anxious opposition of the opponents of Jesus in the full knowledge that they need to come and have the chance to hear of him, to know him too, to have their fear removed, to have their assurance of life and life eternal given. And we have the chance to look forward to all that will be done in his name as we grow in Christ together. So hear and take heart at the news of Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.